Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people. Welcome yet again to another episode of the Reader's Corner here on Four Cents a Podcast. The writer in the spotlight this week is one of my favorite authors of all time, and easily he's probably one of the best short story writers of all time as well, at least in Anglophone literature. He, in his own lifetime, wrote... Not just short fiction, which was his primary medium, but he also wrote television, he wrote films, he wrote film criticism, he was a marvelous essayist, and he was probably one of the most amusing, entertaining, verbal commentators and performers in the 20th century, easily. One of the greats, this week in the Reader's Corner none other than the inimitable Harlan Ellison. If it hadn't been for my getting beaten up daily on the playground of Lathrop grade school in Painesville, Ohio, this book would not be what it is. It might be a book with my stories in it, but it wouldn't be this book, and it wouldn't be as painful a book for me as it is. You've noticed, of course. Everyone finally realizes it as an inescapable truth. Nothing we do as adults is wholly based on our adult reactions. It's always, to greater or lesser degree, depending on how deep our roots to the past and echo of our childhoods. Your politics are either mirror images of your parents' politics when you were a kid, or they're rebellions against those politics. Somewhere in the physical makeup of the love partners who turn you on are vague shadows of the high school cheerleader or basketball center who made your little heart go pity-pat when you were dashing past puberty. If you were accepted and admired by your teenage peer group, you don't have the same gut-wrenching fears about going to parties where you don't know anyone as someone who was an outsider. If you had religion pounded into your head when you were young, chances are pretty good, even if you've renounced formal church ties, that you still carry the guilts and fears around in your gut. Or maybe you've come full circle and have become a Jesus person if you've been disillusioned enough by the world. No one escapes. Our childhoods are sowing the wind. Our adulthoods are reaping the whirlwind. So begins the introduction to one of Harlan Ellison's classic collections of short stories, Approaching Oblivion. Harlan Ellison was among other things, among everything else that he was, I should say, a writer. And he was a writer who wrote everything. He wrote screenplays, he wrote teleplays, he wrote comic books, he wrote tons and tons of nonfiction, criticism, essays. But what he was best known for, and what I think he'll be remembered for, is his short fiction. 
Uh, Harlan is that rare writer who ended up being able to create a reputation for himself, not on the back of a best-selling novel, but on his short stories. He did end up writing uh, at least four or five book-length works, several of which could be called novels, uh, two of which immediately come to mind. One of them is a book called uh, Web of the City, and the other is a novel called Spider Kiss. The first is a crime novel, which was the genre that Harlan was really, really gained his chops in writing when he was a young man writing in the waning days of the pulp magazines. But uh, the other is a rock novel with a little bit of fantasy mixed into it. But it was mainly in the short stories uh, that he, and short fiction in general, because he also produced novelettes as well as novellas, where he really uh, came into his own as a writer. And I call him a writer because even though most of his best-known work, including the short stories I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man, and another book called uh, The Beast That Shattered Love at the Heart of the World, Shatter Like a Glass Goblin, among others, these these wonderful stories, The Death Bird. Uh, Even though they all fall into the category of fantasy and science fiction, speculative fiction as we now call it, Harlan hated the label science fiction writer. He hated it because he saw such labels as limiting. He saw them as just a stamp that you could put on somebody and therefore you didn't have to take them into any kind of consideration because if you saw the stamp that was branded onto them very early on you could discount them for whatever they were and Harlan was always desperate to be taken seriously even though he wrote in genres that at least for his time were not taken seriously as literature He was an interesting individual. Not only was he a prolific writer, but he was also just kind of a... He he was a very combative individual. Um, A cantankerous old fucker. That's the only way that I can think of him. Uh, Many of his friends and colleagues uh, were witness to his short fuse. And his tendency to become irascible, especially with people who he considered stupid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is a, a hatred and a, and, a, and a issue I can totally identify with. But it came out and it really it was really a, a, a millstone around his neck, his, his bad temper, um, especially when he started working in Hollywood, because among other things, Harlan was was a prolific TV and film writer. He only actually wrote one feature film that got produced. It was a movie called The Oscar, and it's infamous for being a movie that basically destroyed his career in movies, because when it came out, if you've ever Googled this movie, or looked it up on Wikipedia, or wherever you get your information from, it is considered one of the single most horrible pieces of hot garbage ever produced by the Hollywood studio system. And it's proof that the Art by Committee process that is Hollywood, or at least was Hollywood when Harlan wrote this movie, was can sometimes backfire. 
And it was from that point on, after he did that movie, that he decided that he was never going to put up with the Hollywood process of art by committee ever again. And he never really did. Um, and it came to bite him in the ass eventually, because with his whole movie career basically gone up in smoke because of that film, he demanded that any time he wrote a script, the script be shot as he wrote it. Which, of course is damn near impossible to do uh, because things change events come up schedules get tightened uh, things go wrong uh, there are a whole bunch of things that can go wrong in a movie that demand a, a change in the script famous instance for example um, when they were making the movie Jaws when Steven Spielberg was making the movie Jaws there was a scene some of you may remember it if you've seen the movie where the shark destroys the shark cage that uh, Hooper is in, the character of Hooper, played by uh, Richard Dreyfus. He's in the cage. He manages to escape, and after he does, the shark destroys the cage. Well, watching that now, you can tell that it's a real shark destroying the cage. Well, believe it or not, they got that piece of film done uh, with second unit in Australia. They were filming actual sharks. They didn't know if they were going to use any of the footage, and a shark had managed to completely destroy their cage when they were doing that. And they loved the footage so much that they rewrote the script, because Hooper, in the original script, was supposed to die. He was supposed to get uh, devoured, just like Quint was, uh, got devoured. The only one who was supposed to be left alive was Brody. But a shark destroying a cage rewrote the script. That's just one example of the things that can change on a Hollywood film. <laughs> but Harlan didn't care. He was one of these people who demanded that his work be shot as written. And again, it bit him in the ass, because eventually he made the transition to writing for television. Then he wrote some of the most famous episodes in science fiction television that ever was, uh, and for some of the best series that were ever aired. The per uh, for perfect example, and probably how he's best remembered in the public eye, is as the writer for, uh, for Star Trek. He wrote an episode that is part of the first season of Star Trek. If you can stream it somewhere, you ought to go watch it. It's an episode called The City on the Edge of Forever. What you see in that episode, which is considered to be the best Star Trek episode of the original series, is not what Harlan wrote in the script. How do I know that? Because the original script that Harlan wrote of City on the Edge of Forever, that eventually got done both as an audiobook original by Skyboat Media and was also done as a comic book uh, that you can also buy <laughs> um, has been published and the original script itself has been published as a part of the Harlan Ellison books collection so you can read it and you, you can see the difference immediately simply because Harlan was not a man who could collaborate well just wasn't that kind of a person. He didn't have the temperament for it, he didn't have the patience for it, he understood it, but as Leonard Nimoy once put it, he just wouldn't put up with it. Um, even though what, Purdue, what, what ended up happening was Star Trek, and he never wrote another episode after that on the original series or any of the subsequent series, because he's he lived long enough to be able to see several different iterations of the Star Trek television show, um, he never wrote another episode for them because of this. But if you watch the show, it's still a really good show. It still works. And the bare bones of what Harlan was going for are there. But only the bare bones. There's a lot of other stuff that isn't there. Um, 
that, that he was peeved wasn't included. But moving on from that, Harlan also wrote uh, two wonderful episodes for a series called Outer Limits, which uh, one of them called uh, Demon with the Glass Hand and the other called Soldier. Both of them are time travel stories, and both of them, believe it or not, served as the basis for the movie Terminator, which James Cameron, in subsequent interviews, admitted to, but at one point uh, refused to acknowledge, even though he had admitted that he had basically ripped off Harlan's work, um, to the point where Harlan sued his ass, which is why at the end of every single copy of the Terminator in the credits, you will see this little disclaimer come up right at the end of the credits that says the producers of this film would like to acknowledge the works of Harlan Ellison. That's called, you know, taking credit where credit is due, giving credit where credit is due. And it's true. But probably, um, and the only film that Har- of, of, based on Harlan's work that was ever made that was faithful to his work. Um, he did adapt a few of his own short stories for an iteration of The Twilight Zone, the version of The Twilight Zone that George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame uh, worked on as a writer-producer. Uh, the, the only other film project of his that really was faithful, that it really represents his work, is a movie called A Boy and His Dog, which, if you watch it, is eerily similar to Road Warrior. <laughs> At least in terms of aesthetic. And it came out before the, the book was published, the novella that it's based on, was published long before Road Warrior. And the film that came out came out before Road Warrior, and the guy who did it, uh, what's his name, Max Miller, I think, Miller, uh, I know that's his last name, uh, who did Road Warrior eventually with Mel Gibson, eventually wrote a letter to Harlan apologizing for basically ripping off his story yet again. So Harlan is a, is a, a perfect example of a writer worth stealing, to quote George Orwell. <laughs> He's a writer worth stealing. Um, but he was also an ordinary figure in his own life. There are many, many stories of Harlan, uh, which is what makes him sort of a controversial figure. I mean, when he died in 2018, only two years ago, when he died in 2018, there were a lot of obituaries that went out about him within the SF world. One of the most famous ones was from Cory Doctorow, really great science fiction writer in his own right, who said um, that Harlan's work was very difficult to contend with, mainly because the thing that drove his stories was anger which is absolutely true. Anger is easily the underlying emotional thread that goes through much of Harlan's work, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people who glom onto him, particularly when they're teenagers, um, react to it the way they do. But he was angry for, in a way, a very good reason, because Harlan was unfortunately the victim of childhood abuse, as he put, as he states, in his own introduction to Approaching Oblivion. He got the crap kicked out of him several times when he was uh, growing up, on a daily basis, as he says. And um, it was because he grew up in Painesville, Ohio. Apt name for a town where you're going to get abused, Painesville. Uh, Just 30 miles northeast of Cleveland, as I believe he says. And uh, he endured it, and it turned him into this very intelligent but incredibly surly and slightly misanthropic figure, which is what he became and what he was 
for the rest of his life. Because you don't go through that kind of abuse without it leaving some kind of scar. Uh, so he did. That's what he became. But I still think his work has power beyond the underlying tone of anger that runs through most of it. And I think that he was a far more complicated, complex individual than a lot of people make him out to be. Near the end of his life, he was even included as a voice on the show The Simpsons. <laughs> where he gives Milhouse a hard time, if you've ever found that clip of him. Um, he's a lot more than that. That's a caricature of Harlan. Um, he was a... He was a damaged person. But he made the most out of life. And he ended up doing work that he loved. And he ended up living a life that he enjoyed, for the most part. Uh, despite the trials and tribulations that he went through. And just to give you an idea of a story of his that is not um, drenched in anger, although it's there, it's right there, but it's a very mild current, a little creek of anger that runs through the story. What I decided to read to you from today is a story today is a story from Approaching Oblivion called One Life Furnished in Early Poverty. It's not science fiction. In fact, if I had to give it a label, I would say it's either fantasy or maybe even magic realism uh, or surrealism. It's just it's a story where something very strange happens in a very mundane setting, and it's treated with the utmost blunt honesty. As a matter of fact, this very story, Harlan eventually adapted it into a Twilight Zone episode on that very show that he worked on with George Martin. And to me, it is one of the most autobiographical stories there. There are clear echoes of Harlan in this story. It's probably one of the most blatant pieces of autobiography he ever wrote in terms of fiction. Um, and I think it, it makes it very powerful. It makes him tragic. It makes him human. It's a very heart-wrenching story in many, many different ways. And it's a beautiful story. So I think I'll turn you all over to it. So ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the work of Harlan Ellison, the story One Life Furnished in Early Poverty from his collection Approaching Oblivion. Here we go. so it was, strangely, strangely, that I found myself standing in the backyard of the house I had lived in when I was seven years old. At thirteen minutes till midnight, on no special magical winter's night, in a town that had held me only till I was physically able to run away, in Ohio, in winter, near midnight, certain I could go back. Back to a time when what was now was then. Not truly knowing why I even wanted to go back, but certain that I could. Without magic, without science, without alchemy, without supernatural assistance. Just go back. Because I had to. I needed to go back. 
back 35 years and more to find myself at the age of seven before any of it had begun, before any of the directions had been taken, to find out what turning point in my life it had been that had wrecked, wrenched me from the course all little boys took to adulthood, that had set me on the road of loneliness and success ending here, back where I'd begun, in a backyard at now 12 minutes to midnight. At 42, I'd come to that point in my life toward which I'd struggled since I'd been a child, a place of security, importance, recognition. The only one from this town who had made it. The ones who had had the most promise in school were now milkmen, used car salesmen, married to fat, stupid, dead women who had, themselves, been girls of exceeding promise in high school. They had been trapped in this little Ohio town, never to break free, to die there, unknown. I had broken free, had done all the wonderful things I'd said I would do. Why should it all depress me now? Perhaps it was because Christmas was nearing and I was alone, with bad marriages and lost friendships behind me. I walked out of the studio, away from the wet ink new $50,000 contract, got in my car, and drove to International Airport. It was a straight line made up of in-flight meals and jet airliners and rental cars and hastily purchased winter clothing, a straight line to a backyard I had not seen in over 30 years. I had to find the dragoon to go back. Crossing the rime-frosted grass that crackled like cellophane, I walked under the shadow of the lightning-blasted pear tree. I had climbed in that tree endlessly when I was seven years old. In summer, its branches hung far over and scraped the roof of the garage. I could shinny out across the limb and drop onto the garage roof. I had once pushed Johnny Mummy off the garage roof. Not out of meanness, but simply because I had jumped from it many times, and I could not understand anyone not finding it a wonderful thing to do. He had sprained his ankle, and his father, a fireman, had come looking for me. I'd hidden on the garage roof. I walked around the side of the garage, and there was the barely visual, visible path. To one side of the path, I had always buried my tin toy soldiers, for no other reason than to bury them. No, I had a secret place, and later dig them up again as a finding treasure. It came to me that even now, as an adult, I did the same thing. Dining in a Japanese restaurant, I would hide small pieces of pakai or pineapple or teriyaki in my rice bowl, and pretend to be delighted when, later in the meal, my chopsticks encountered the tiny treasures down in among the rice grains. I knew the spot, of course. I got down on my hands and knees and began digging with the silver penknife on my watch chain. It had been my father's penknife, almost the only thing he had left me when he died. The ground was hard, but I dug with enthusiasm, and the moon gave me more than enough light. Down and down I dug, knowing eventually I would come across the dragoon. It was there the bright paint rusted off his body the saber corroded and reduced to a stub, lying there in the grave I had dug for him 35 years before, 
I scooped the little metal soldier out of the ground and cleaned him off as best as I could with my paisley dressed handkerchief. He was faceless now, and as sad as I felt. I hunkered there under the moon and waited for midnight, only a minute away, knowing it was all going to come right for me after so terribly long. The house behind me was silent and dark. I had no idea who lived there now. It would have been unpleasant if the strangers who now lived here had been unable to sleep, and rising to get a glass of water had idly looked into the backyard, their backyard. I had played here and built a world for myself here from dreams and loneliness, using talismans of comic books and radio programs and matinee movies and potent charms like the sad little dragoon in my hand, but it was now their backyard. My wristwatch said midnight, one hand laid straight on top of the other. The moon faded, slowly it went gray and shadowy till the glow was gone and then even the gray afterimage was gone. The wind rose, slowly it came from somewhere far away and built around me. I stood up, pulling the collar of my topcoat around my neck. The wind was neither warm nor cold, yet it rushed without even ruffling my hair. I was not afraid. The ground was settling. Slowly it lowered me the tiniest fractions of inches, but steadily, as though the layers of tomorrow that had built up were vanishing. My thoughts were of myself. I'm coming to save you. I'm coming, Gus. You won't hurt anymore. You'll never have hurt. The moon came back. It had been full. Now it was new. The wind died. It had carried me where I'd needed to go. The ground settled. The years had been peeled off. I was alone in the backyard of the house at 89 Harmon Drive. The snow was deeper. It was a different house, though it was the same. It was not recently painted. The depression had not been long ago. Money was still tight. It wasn't weather-beaten, but in a year or two my father would have it painted. Light yellow. There was a sumac tree growing below the window of the dinette. It was nourished by lima beans and soup and cabbage. You'll just sit there until you finish every drop of your dinner. We're not wasting food. There are children starving in Russia. I put the dragoon in my topcoat pocket. He had worked more than hard enough. I walked around the side of the house. I smiled as I saw again the wooden milk box by the side door. In the morning, very early, the milkmen would put three quarts of milk there. But before anyone could bring them in, this very cold winter morning in December, the cream would push its way up and the little covered cap, cardboard cap would be an inch above the mouth of the bottle. The gravel talked beneath my feet. The street was quiet and cold. I stood in the front yard beside the big oak tree and looked up and down. It was the same. It was as though I'd never been away. I started to cry. Hello. Gus was on one of the swings in the playground. I stood outside the fence of Lathrop Grade School and watched him standing on the seat, gripping the ropes, pumping his little legs. He was smaller than I'd remembered him. He wasn't smiling as he tried to swing higher. It was serious work to him. Standing outside the hurricane fence, watching Gus, I was happy. 
I scratched at a rash on my right wrist and smoked a cigarette and was happy. I didn't see them until they were out of the shadows of the bushes almost upon him. One of them rushed up and grabbed Gus's leg and tried to pull him off the seat just as he reached the bottom of his swing. Gus managed to hold on, but the chain ropes twisted crazily, and when it went back up, it hit the metal leg of the framework. Gus fell, rolled face down in the dust of the playground, and tried to sit up. The boys pushed through between the swings, avoiding the one that clanged back and forth. Gus managed to get up, and the boys formed a circle around him. Then Jack Wielden stepped out and faced him. I remembered Jack Wielden. He was taller than Gus. They were all taller than Gus, but Wielden was beefier. I could see shadows surrounding him, shadows of a boy who would grow into a man with a beer stomach and thick arms. But the eyes would always remain the same. He shoved Gus in the face. Gus went back, dug in, and charged him. Gus came at him low, head tucked under, fists tight at the ends of arms braced closely to the body, extended forward. He hit him in the stomach and wrestled him around. They struggled together like inept club fighters, raising dust. One of the boys in the circle took a step forward and hit Gus hard in the back of the head. Gus turned his face out of Wielden's stomach, and Wielden punched him in the mouth. Gus started to cry. I'd been frozen, watching it happen, but he was crying. I looked both ways down the fence and found the break far to my right. I threw the cigarette away, and I dashed down the fence, trying to look behind me, then through the break, and I was running towards them the long distance from far right field of the baseball diamond toward the swings and seesaws. They had Gus down now, and they were kicking him. When they saw me coming, they started to run away. Jack Wielden paused to kick Gus once more in the side, then he, too, ran. Gus was lying there, on his back, the dust smeared into mud around his face. I bent down and picked him up. He wasn't moving, but he wasn't really hurt. I held him very close and carried him toward the bushes that rose on a small incline at the side of the playground. The bushes were cool overhead, and they canopied us, hit us. I laid him down and used my handkerchief to clean away the dirt. His eyes were very blue. I smoothed the straight brown hair off his forehead. He wore braces, one of the rubber bands hooked on to the pins of the braces used to keep them tension tight had broken. I pulled it free. He opened his eyes and started crying again something hurt in my chest. He started sniffling, unable to catch his breath. He tried to speak, but the words were only mangled sounds huffed out with too much air and pain. Then he forced himself to sit up and rub the back of his hand across his runny nose. He stared at me. It was panic and fear and confusion and shame at being seen this way. They... they hit me from in back, he said sniffling. I know. I saw. Did you scare him off? Yes. He didn't say thank you. It wasn't necessary. 
The backs of my thighs hurt from squatting. I sat down. My name is Gus, he said, trying to be polite. I didn't know what name to give him. I was going to tell him the first name to come to my head, but I heard myself say, My name is Mr. Rosenthal. He looked startled. That's my name, too. Gus Rosenthal. Hm, isn't that peculiar, I said. We grinned at each other, and he wiped his nose again. I didn't want to see my mother or father. I had those memories. They were sufficient. It was little Gus I wanted to be with. But one night, I crossed into the backyard at 89 Harmon Drive from the empty lots that would later be a housing development. And I stood in the dark, watching them eat dinner. There was my father. I hadn't remembered him being so handsome. My mother was saying something to him, and he nodded as he ate. They were in the dinette. Gus was playing with his food. Don't mush your food around like that, Gus. Eat or you can't stay up to here. Lux presents Hollywood. But they're doing Dawn Patrol. Then don't mush your food. Mommy, I murmured, standing in the cold. Mama, there are children starving in Russia. And I added, thirty-five years late, Name two, Mama. I met Gus downtown at the newsstand. Hi. Oh, hello. Buying some comics? Uh-huh. Did you ever read Doll Man and Kid Eternity? Yeah, they're great, but I got them. Not the new issues. Sure do. Bet you've got last month's. He's just checking in the new comics right now. So we waited while the newsstand owner used the heavy wire snips on the bundle and checked off the magazines against the distributor's long white mimeograph sheet. And I bought Gus Airboy and Jingle Jangle Comics and Blue Beetle and Wiz Comics and Doll Man and Kid Eternity. Then I took him to Isley's for a hot fudge sundae. They served it in a tall tulip glass with the hot fudge in a little pitcher. When the waitress had gone to get the sundaes, little Gus looked at me. Hey, how'd you know I only liked crushed nuts and not whipped cream or cherry? I leaned back in the high-walled booth and smiled at him. What do you want to be when you grow up, Gus? He shrugged. I don't know. Somebody put a nickel in the Woolitzer in his booth and Glenn Miller swung into a string of pearls. Well, did you ever think about it? No. Uh-huh. I like cartooning. Maybe I could draw comic books. It's pretty smart thinking, Gus. There's a lot of money to be made in art. I stared around the dairy store at the Coca-Cola posters of pretty girls with page boy hairdos drawn by an artist named Harold M. Macaulay whose style would be known throughout the world whose name would never be known. He stared at me. It's fun too, isn't it? I was embarrassed. I thought first of money. He thought first of happiness. I had reached him before he'd chosen his path. There was still time to make him a man who would think first of joy all through his life. Mr. Rosenthal? I looked down and across just as the waitress brought the Sundays. She set them down and I paid her. When she'd gone, Gust asked me, 
Why do they call me a dirty Jew elephant? Who called you that, Gus? The guys. The ones you were fighting that day? He nodded. Why'd they say elephant? I spooned up some vanilla ice cream, thinking. My back ached and the rash had spread up my right wrist onto my forearm. Well, Jewish people are supposed to have big noses, Gus. I poured the hot fudge out of the little pitcher. It bulged with surface tension for a second, then spilled through its own dark brown film, covering the three scoops of real ice cream. Not tasty, whip-freeze gunk substitute. Real ice cream. I mean, that's what some people believe. So I suppose they thought it was smart to call you an elephant, because an elephant has a big nose. A trunk. You understand? That's dumb. I don't have a big nose. Do I? I wouldn't say so, Gus. They most likely said it just to make you mad. Sometimes people do that. That's dumb. We sat there for a while and talked. I went far down inside the tulip glass with a long-handled spoon and finished the deep, dark, almost black, bittersweet hot fudge. They hadn't made hot fudge like this in many years. Gus got ice cream up the spoon handle, on his fingers, on his chin, on his t-shirt, on the top of his head. We talked about a great many things. We talked about how difficult arithmetic was, how I would still have to use my fingers sometimes even as an adult when I did my checkbook, how the guys never gave a short kid his wraps when the Sandlot ball games were in progress, how I overcompensated with women from doubts about stature, how different kinds of food were pretty bad tasting, how I still used ketchup on a well-done steak, how it was pretty lonely in the neighborhood with nobody for friends, how I had erected a facade of charisma and glamour so no one would reach me deeply enough to hurt me. How Leon always invited all the kids over to his house, but when Gus got there, they slammed the door and stood behind the screen laughing and jeering. How even now a slammed door raised the hair on the back of my neck and, and a phone receiver slammed down, cutting me off, sent me into a senseless rage. How comic books were great. How my scripts sold so easily because I had never learned to rein in my imagination. We talked about a great many things. I'd better get you home now, I said. Okay. We got up. Hey, Mr. Rosenthal, you'd better wipe the chocolate off your face. He wiped. Mr. Rosenthal, how'd you know I like crushed nuts and not whipped cream or a cherry? We spent a great deal of time together. I bought him a copy of a pulp magazine called Startling Stories and read him a story about a space pirate who captures a man and his wife and offers the man the choice of opening one of two large boxes. In one is the man's wife, with twelve hours of air to breathe. In the other is a terrible alien fungus that will eat him alive. Little Gus sat on the edge of the big hole he dug, out in the empty lots, dangling his feet and listening. His forehead was furrowed as he listened to the marvels of Jack Williamson's Twelve Hours to Live there on the edge of the fort he'd built. We discussed the radio programs Gus heard every day. Tennessee Jed, K 
Captain Midnight, Jack Armstrong, Superman, Don Winslow, The Navy, and the nighttime programs, I Love a Mystery, Suspense, The Adventures of Sam Spade, and the Sunday programs, The Shadow, Quiet Please, The Mole Mystery Theater. We became good friends. He had told his mother and father about Mr. Rosenthal, who was his friend, but they'd spanked him for the startling stories because they thought he'd stolen it. So he stopped telling them about me. That was all right. It made the bond between us stronger. One afternoon, we went down behind the Colony Lumber Company, through the woods and the weeds to the old condemned pond. Gus told me he used to go swimming there and fishing sometimes for a black oily fish with whiskers. I told him it was a catfish. He liked that, liked to know the names of things. I told him that was called nomenclature, and he laughed to know there was a name for knowing names. I sat on the, we sat on the piled logs, rotting beside the black mirror water, and Gus asked me to tell him what it was like where I lived, and where I'd been, and what I'd done, and everything. I ran away from home when I was 13, Gus. Wasn't you happy there? Well, yes and no. They loved me, my mother and father. They really did. They just didn't understand what I was about. There was a pain on my neck. I touched a fingertip to the place. It was a boil beginning to grow. I hadn't had a boil in years, many years, not since I was a... What's the matter, Mr. Rosenthal? Nothing, Gus. Well, anyhow, I ran away and joined a carny. Huh? A carnival. The tri-state shows. We moved through Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Missouri, even Kansas. Boy, a carnival. Just like in Toby Tyler or Ten Weeks with the Circus. I really cried when Toby's monkey got killed. That was the worst part of it. Did you do stuff like that when you were with the circus? Carnival. Yeah, uh-huh. Did you? Something like that. I carried water for the animals sometimes, although we only had a few of those, and mostly in the freak show. But usually what I did was clean up and carry food to the performers in their tops. What's that? That's where they sleep, in ragged tarp lines. You know, tarps. Oh, yeah, I know. Go on, huh? The rash was all the way up to my shoulder now. It itched like hell, and when I'd gone to the drugstore to get an aerosol spray to relieve it so it wouldn't spread, I had only to see those round wooden display tables with their glass centers, under which were bottles of teal tooth liquid, tangy red-red lipstick, and nylons with a seam down the back to know the druggist wouldn't even know what I meant by Bactine or Liquid Band-Aid. Well, along about KC, the carny got busted because there were too many uh, mole dips and cannons and paper hangers in the tip. I waited, his eyes growing huge. What's all that mean, Mr. Rosenthal? Aha, fine carny stiff you'd make. You don't even know the lingo. Please, Mr. Th Rosenthal, please tell me. Well, KC is Kansas City, Missouri, when it isn't Kansas City, Kansas. Except really, on the other side of the river is Weston. And busted means thrown in jail, and... You were in jail? 
Sure was, little Gus. But let me tell you now. Cannons are pickpockets. Mole dips are lady pickpockets. And paper hangers are fellows who write bad checks. And a tip is a group. So what happened? What happened? One of these bad guys, one of the cannons, you see, picked the pocket of an assistant district attorney. And we all got thrown in jail. And after a while, everyone was released on bail except me and the geek. Me, because I wouldn't tell them who I was because I didn't want to go home. And the geek, because a carny can always find a wet brain in any town to play geek. What's a geek, huh? The geek was a 60-year-old alcoholic. So sunk in his own endless drunkenness that he was almost a zombie, a wet brain. He was billed as The Thing and he lived in a portable pit that they carried around, and he bit the heads off snakes, and ate live chickens, and slept at his own dung, and for all for a bottle of gin every day. They locked me in the drunk tank with him. The smell, the smell of sour liquor oozing with sweat out of his pores, it made me sick. It was a smell I could never forget. And on the third day, he went crazy. They wouldn't fix him with gin, and he went crazy. He climbed the bars of the big freestanding drunk tank in the middle of the lockup and he banged his head against the bars and ceiling where they met till he fell back and lay there, breathing raggedly, stinking of that terrible smell, his face like a pound of raw meat. The pain in my stomach was worse now. I took us back home to Harmon Drive. My weight had dropped to just over a hundred and ten. My clothes didn't fit. The acne and boils were worse. I smelled of witch hazel. Gus was getting more antisocial. I realized what was happening. I was an alien in my own past. If I stayed much longer, God only knew what would happen to little Gus, but certainly I would waste away, perhaps just vanish. Then. Would Gus's future cease to exist too? I had no way of knowing, but my choice was obvious. I had to return. And couldn't. I was happier here than I'd ever been before. The bigotry and violence Gus had known before I came to him had ceased. They knew he was being watched over, but Gus was becoming more erratic. He was shoplifting toy soldiers and comic books from the Kresge's and constantly defying his parents, he was turning bad. I had to go back. I told him on Saturday we had gone to see uh, Lash LaRue Western and Val Luton's The Cat People at the Lake Theater. When we came back, I parked the car on Mentor Avenue and we went walking in the big, cool, dark woods that fronted Mentor where it met Harmon Drive. Mr. Rosenthal? Gus said. He looked upset. Yes, Gus. I got a problem, sir. What's that, Gus? My head ached. It was a steady needle of pressure above the right eye. My mother is going to send me to a military school. I remembered. Oh, God, I thought. It had been terrible. Precisely the thing not to do to a child like Gus. They said it was because I was rambunctious. They said they were going to send me there for a year or two. Mr. Rosenthal, don't let them send me there. I didn't mean to be banned. I just wanted to be around you. My heart slammed inside me again, then again, 
Gus, I have to go away. He stared at me. I heard a soft whimper. Take me with you, Mr. Rosenthal, please. I want to see Galveston. We can drive a dynamite truck in North Carolina. We can go to Matawachan, Ontario, Canada and work topping trees. We can sail on boats, Mr. Rosenthal. Gus. We can work the carny, Mr. Rosenthal. We can pick peanuts and oranges all across the country. We can hitchhike to San Francisco and ride the cable cars. We can ride the boxcars, Mr. Rosenthal. I promise I'll keep my legs inside, not dangle them. I remember what you said about the door slamming when they hook them up. I'll keep my legs inside. Honest, I will. He was crying. My head ached hideously, but he was crying. I have to go, Gus. You don't care. He was shouting. You don't care about me. You don't care about what happens to me. You don't care if I die. You don't... He didn't have to say it. You don't love me. I do, Gus. I swear to God, I do. I looked up at him. He was supposed to be my friend, but he wasn't. He was going to let them send me off to that military school. I hope you die. Oh, dear God, Gus, I am. I turned and ran out of the woods as I watched him run out of the woods. I drove away, the green Plymouth with the running boards and the heavy body. It was hard steering. The world swam around me. My eyesight blurred. I could feel myself withering away. I thought I'd left myself behind, but little Gus had followed me out of the woods. Having done it, I now remembered. Why had I remembered none of it before? As I drove off down Mentor Avenue, I came out of the woods and saw the big green car starting up, and I ran wildly forward, crouching low, wanting only to go with him, my friend, me. I threw in the clutch and dropped the stick into first and pulled away from the curb as I wrenched the car and climbed onto the rear fender, pulling my legs up, hanging onto the trunk latch. I drove, weaving, my eyes watering and things going first blue, then green, hanging on for dear life to the cold latch handle. Cars whipped around, honking madly, trying to tell me that I was on the rear of the car, but I didn't know what they were look honking about, and scared their honking would tell me I was back there, hiding. After I'd gone almost a mile, a car pulled up alongside me, and a woman sitting next to the driver looked down at me crouching there, and I made a please don't tell sign with my fingers to freezing my to my freezing lips. But the car pulled ahead and the woman rolled down her window and motioned to me. I rolled down my window and the woman yelled across through the rushing wind that I was back there on the rear fender. I pulled over and Fear gripped me as the car stopped, and I saw me getting out of the door, and I crawled off the car and started running away, but my legs were cramped and cold from having hung on back there, and I ran awkwardly. Then coming out of the dark was a road sign, and I hit it, and it hit me in the side of the face, and I fell down, and I ran toward myself, lying there, crying, and I got to him just as I got up and ran off into the gravel yard surrounding the Colony Lumber Company. Little Gus was bleeding from the forehead where he'd struck the metal sign. He ran into the darkness and I knew where he was running. I had to catch him, to tell him, to make him understand why I had to go away. I came to the hurricane fence and ran and ran till I found the place where I'd 
dug out and under it and slipped down and pulled myself under and got my clothes all dirty. But I got up and ran back behind the colony lumber company into the sumac and the weeds till I came to the condemned pond back there. Then I sat down and looked out over the black water. I was crying. I followed the trail down to the pond. It took me longer to climb over the fence than it had taken him to crawl under it. When I came down to the pond, he was sitting there with a long blade of sawgrass in his mouth, crying softly. I heard him coming down, but I didn't turn around. I came down to him and crouched down behind him. Hey, I said quietly. Hey, little Gus. I wouldn't turn around. I wouldn't. I spoke his name again and touched him on the shoulder, and in an instant he was turned to me, hugging me around the chest, crying into my jacket, mumbling over and over, Don't go. Please don't go. Please take me with you. Please don't leave me here alone. And I was crying too. I hugged little Gus and touched his hair and felt him holding on to me with all his might, stronger than a seven-year-old should be able to hold on. And I tried to tell him how it was, how it would be. Gus, hey, hey, little Gus, listen to me. I want to stay. You know I want to stay. But I can't. I looked up at him. He was crying too. It seemed so strange for a grown-up to be crying like that, and I said, if you leave me, I'll die. I will. I knew it wouldn't do any good to try explaining. He was too young. He wouldn't be able to understand. He pulled my arms from around him, and he folded my hands in my lap, and he stood up, and I looked at him. He was going to leave me. I knew he was. I stopped crying. I wouldn't let him see me cry. I looked down at him. The moonlight held his face in a pale photograph. I wasn't fooling myself. He'd understand. He'd know. Kids always know. I turned and stared back, started back up the path. Little Gus didn't follow. He sat there, looking back at me. I only turned once to look at him. He was still sitting there, like that. He was watching me, staring up for, at me from the pond side and I knew what instant it had been that had formed me. It hadn't been all the people who'd called me a wild kid or a strange kid or any of that. It wasn't being poor or being lonely. I watched him go away. He was my friend, but he didn't have no guts. He didn't, but I'd show him. I'd really show him. I was going to get out of here, go away, be a big person and do a lot of things, and someday... I'd run into him someplace and see him, and he'd come up and shake my hand, and I'd spit on him. Then I'd beat him up. He walked up the path and went away. I sat there for a long time by the pond, till it got real cold. I got back in the car and went to find the way back to the future, where I belonged. It wasn't much, but it was all I had. I would find it. I still had the Dragoon, and there were many stops I'd made on the way to becoming me. Perhaps Kansas City, perhaps Mattawachan, Ontario, Canada, perhaps Galveston, perhaps Shelby, North Carolina. And crying, I drove 
Not for myself, but for myself, for little Gus, for what I'd done to him, forced him to become Gus, Gus. But, oh God, what if I came back again and again? Suddenly, the road did not look familiar. If I've at all whetted your appetite uh, for Harlan Ellison by doing this episode, by reading you that story, by telling you a little bit about him, then I highly recommend that all of you uh, check out a film in which he was profiled uh, called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. It's a full-length feature documentary that was done over a period of, I think, like some decade, maybe a decade, maybe more than that. Uh, by a very good friend of Harlan's, and uh, it's t- it goes into the story of his life in many ways. Uh, it doesn't get into too much detail about his individual stories and how they came to be, but it does go through the broad strokes of how his stories came to be. One of the things I failed to mention about Harlan in my little intro was that I think of him in many ways as one of the two major spearheaders of a movement in speculative fiction that came around roughly the late 70s, early 80s, or maybe it was the early 70s. And that's a thing called New Wave. And New Wave science fiction, New Wave uh, speculative fiction, actually it was the New Wave that I think christened the term speculative fiction, um, is basically the form of SF as we also call it, that pretty much all the writers working today in the 21st century are really reacting to and where it really comes out of because it was the first time that SF writers took the writing incredibly seriously, not only in terms of style, but also in terms of content and subject matter. uh, Harlan, along with another writer called Michael Moorcock, who some of you may know as the author of the Elric stories and the the, uh, Jerry Cornelius books, among other things, uh, as well as his disdain for Tolkien, um, which we won't need to get into. Um, Michael Moorcock uh, was spearheaded New Wave by editing a magazine called New Worlds over in Britain. Harlan did kind of the same thing here in the U.S. with a book of his called Dangerous Visions. It was an anthology that he edited and went to a whole bunch of writers who he knew and said, you know, the most out there kind of fiction that you've ever wanted to tell, those craziest stories, the stories that have sex, the story that talk about race relations and labor relations and get into really taboo subjects, I want them. And he did, and he did two volumes of it. He did Dangerous Visions and another one called Again Dangerous Visions. There was supposed to be a third called The Last Dangerous Visions that sadly was never published, but um, they go into that in um, Dreams with Sharp Teeth pretty well as to why, what happened. So he's significant in in that way as well, but he's also innovative. He, he's, he does very strange things in general with fiction. Um, his story... Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man, which won him, I think, one of his nebulas as well as one Hugo, 
um, is a weird little story written in third-person omniscient. It's essentially three scenes that moves through time without the aid of flashback. Strange little thing. Just begins in the middle of something, transitions backwards, then finally goes on to the end. And then another one of his called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, again, another Hugo Award winner, was is basically a horror story disguised as a science fiction story. <laughs> he's very good at suckering you like that. Um, so he's he's significant in a lot of ways, and I still think he is still significant. I, I think as time goes on, he will be taken more and more seriously. Um, one of his short stories, even, um, nearer to the end of his life, a story called The Man Who Rode Christopher Columbus Ashore, uh, was picked for Best American Short Stories, despite the fact that it's a sort of weird, speculative science fiction short story in some ways. Uh, but it was picked for Best American Short Stories. Now, for an SF writer who had been writing for that long, had his roots in the pulp magazines, that's a big fucking deal. <laughs> and that's a, that's a real accolade. Um, now, as for where you should begin with Harlan's work, because he's another, he's one of these authors who has so many books, it's hard really to tell where you should begin. Approaching Oblivion is a pretty good place to begin, but I'll, I'll give you an even better one, a better suggestion. It's a book called The Top of the Volcano that was done by Subterranean Press several years ago. It includes all of the award-winning, notable science fiction stories fantasy stories, every single award that got some kind of, every single story of his that got some kind of recognition is in this one book. It is the ultimate, I guess you could say, hall of fame in literary terms of Harlan's best work, all curated in one place. The book's a little bit expensive because Subterranean Press does a lot of these limited editions, um, and I think it was basically a hardcover original, so it might be a little. So I recommend if you have an e-reader, get it off, get it as an e-book, um, because it's a great compendium of all of Harlan's best-known stuff. It's not um, all-encompassing because it's only his fiction, but it's the best of his fiction. It's a boy and his dog, or a pet Harlequin. Uh, I have no mouth. Uh, the Whimper of Whipped Dogs, which won an Edgar Award. You know, uh, the man who rode Christopher Columbus ashore, which was uh, in Best American Short Stories. It's it's a really good book to have, and if you have to have just one Harlan Ellison book on your shelf, I recommend that one. Now, as for this particular story, One Life Furnished in Early Poverty, in addition to the autobiographical content. What immediately struck me about this story, and really came home to me after I saw Dreams with Sharp Teeth for the first time, right at the end of the film, during the credits rolling scene, uh, there's a section of the credits where Harlan acknowledges a whole bunch of people, uh, major influences and major figures in his life, you know, people who were important to him, and things that were important to him. And one of the names he lists in this acknowledgments at the end of the film uh, is Jorge Luis Borges. I bring him up because Jorge Luis Borges has a story that was originally published, I believe, in his book, The Book of Sand. It was a collection of his own short stories. 
And in the Book of Sand, there is a story called The Other. Very brief little story that takes place, I think, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the older Borges, because, of course, Borges only ever wrote stories basically about himself and had fantastical things happen around him. Most of his stories, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, are basically written in first person. But Borges wrote a story called The Other, in which an older version of himself meets a younger version of himself, and they have a conversation. Now, it's a very succinct, very short story. Very, very short story. I think it's less than, like, seven or eight pages. And they just have a discourse. The older man who's gone through life, who's experienced a lot of rough times, having a discussion with this younger man who's really just starting out in life. Uh, It's one of those stories that I think Borges wrote later on when he was a much older figure. Um, I always have this perpetual image of him kind of being an old man with a cane with... You know, his eyes kind of not looking at anything because by that time he was totally blind. But I couldn't help but when reading this story, One Life Furnished in Early Poverty, to think of the other. Because it's a story, much like this one, about the meeting of two different versions of the same person. And the discourse that goes on between them. The younger person and the older person. The difference is, the one difference is, is that uh, while they're both written in first person, Harlan acknowledges the strangeness. Towards the end of the story, there's a weird blurring of who's speaking. Because you've got both versions of this character, Gus Rosenthal, um, talking about himself. And in that very last scene, where suddenly from one paragraph to another, you're not entirely sure who's talking. Is it the older Gus? Is it the younger Gus? If you're a careful reader, you can really easily tell who it is because you can get this sense of, you know, this character's here, this character's there, and they're, he's he's following his younger self, but there, there's a weird blurring, and Har- which Harlan did on purpose, I'm sure. You, you don't... Writers don't do things like that by accident. <laughs> that, that was a deliberate choice on his part. Um, to have that moment where Gus realizes that this was the moment when he became who he was and sort of the strange time travel bootstrap paradox thing that's going on that all of a sudden you realize that you were the person who made this happen in your own past, which is a beautiful metaphor for how life works. You know, life is essentially a series of decisions. It's a series of choices. You make this choice, you go down this path. And then, that's another thing. It reminds me of Jorge Luis Borges. um, Is his great short story, The Garden of Forking Paths. Which is essentially a story... Some people read it as a story about hyperlinks. I read it as a story about the choices you make and the ramifications of the choices you make. And, you know, the multiverse of other choices that you could have made and where those would have led. You know, because immediately it all becomes kind of a game of chess. There are millions of different combinations of things that could have happened if you go this way instead of that way, and you take this left instead of that right, and you um, show up two minutes late to this, and you you end up leaving the house an extra hour early. All those things that end up leading to where you are. And it's sometimes very hard to figure out what, what those paths are. So... That's what I'm talking about. You know, Harlan's genius was the fact that he was able to draw influence from a writer like Borges, who undoubtedly he was 
an influence on Harlan. I'm not entirely sure when Harlan would have read his stories, but I do know that Borges published some of his stories when they were translated from Spanish into English, because he wrote them originally in Spanish. They were translated, and a lot of them were published in magazines like the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which was a regular venue where Harlan published throughout all his life, so he must have encountered them there. And undoubtedly, he had to have drawn some amazing inspiration from it. You know, take the basic idea at the, at the heart of a story like The Other, where two different versions of yourself meet and interact and converse and see what happens. The difference, of course, was... The other difference, of course, was the fact that Harlan was able to remove himself just a little bit more from the story by giving the narrator and the character he interacts with a different name. But otherwise, I mean, he even uses the name of his own grade school, Lathrop Grade School in Ohio. You know, it's wonderful. What's other, what, The other thing, aside from the Twilight Zone episode, which I mentioned earlier that, that, that um, this story served as the basis of, is the fact that within dreams with sharp teeth, one of the things that Harlan prided himself on was his ability to read his own stories correctly. <laughs> the way that he would have done them, the way he thinks the words should, uh, uh, should sound, and the cadence and so forth, and where the emphasis should go, and all that stuff. Uh, all these sound-based things that writers who are really obsessive and attentive to the words that they put down on the paper, um, what they're able to do with it. It's, it's brilliant. He does a brief reading from the beginning of One Life Furnished in Early Poverty as a segue into the segment of the documentary where they really talk about his childhood, which Harlan is right. It, it, it is the thing that shapes you more than anything else. It's what makes you into the person that you are and that the heart that's what this story is really all about um and sometimes we may not like the future but it is it is what it is um and i think you know the things like that big themes like that are another thing that harlan's stories are notable for is the fact that he wasn't afraid to talk about big issues, human issues. He really, along with a lot of the other new wave writers, was able to bring that humanist lens to SF that two decades before, three decades before, had been all about technology and technological development. Meanwhile, he, on the other hand, always had that. Which is one of the reasons why he didn't like being called a science fiction writer, because as far as he was concerned, he wasn't writing that. Because his idea of a science fiction was basically what we now call hard SF. You know, stories about machines and going out into space and alien encounters, and while some of his stories feature that kind of stuff, it wasn't really where his sympathies were. His sympathies were with people, and how messy we are. <laughs> how imperfect we are. But there's... There's something wonderful. There's a there's a Japanese, I think it's a Japanese art form, uh, where an artisan will take a pot and uh, smash it, and then put it back together 
with filaments, little, not filaments, um, fillings of gold. Um, and the reason why it's done this way, I'm trying to remember the exact term from it, but I, I can't off the top of my head. Uh, crappy memory, then go figure. Um, Kintsugi, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird the kind of shit you eventually remember. Um, yeah, Kintsugi, the art of Kintsugi. I think it's Japanese, isn't it? Uh, yes, Japanese. Had to look that one up. Because, of course, I can remember the word, I just can't remember the culture it comes from. But there's this, this art form called Kintsugi, where an artisan will smash a clay pot together, and then put it back together, and fill the cracks with gold or some other precious metal. And the philosophy behind Kintsugi is the whole idea that the imperfections are where the beauty lies. And that's the wonderful thing about Harlan, is that despite his imperfections, despite his temper, despite the um, cantankerousness that characterized him pretty much his entire life, I mean, there are videos of him, you know, saying things that I think we in our politically correct time would find um, offensive. Uh, I honestly don't think he cared about that, but <laughs> it, it is what it is. But those imperfections are also what allowed the beauty to come through. And in his case, the beauty that he was able to give the world was his fiction. And I think, even though he's probably not going to be nearly as well remembered as other great writers, because he didn't have that novel, and the novel was kind of the the literary way of ensuring your mainstream immortality. Even despite that, I still think that he's going to be remembered as a great author of our time. Because his stories are just... They're too powerful, too good, to be forgotten. Uh, maybe we'll forget who he was eventually. You know, eventually, you know, people, some people are forgotten. I mean, we remember the story, The Gift of the Magi, but most of us don't remember that William Sidney Porter, otherwise known as O. Henry, was a real person with his own problems. We don't remember him very much, but we remember The Gift of the Magi. Maybe that will be the case with Harlan. We'll always remember one of the stories that he wrote that really moved us, but maybe we won't remember him, which is a shame, because he was an interesting person. But I think... At least for him, for him, with the point of view that he had about art and about creation, it's the work to him that matters. And his work is really, really wonderful. With that said, I wanted to give you just one more idea, because... Harlan, despite that beauty, he was still a cantankerous old fucker all the way to the end. <laughs> and so I just wanted to give you one more idea of what he was like as a result of this. Um, and so I will read you one final bit of the, of the introduction to Approaching Oblivion. So here it is. For every Gandhi or Nader or Bertrand Russell or Thoreau, there are a hundred thousand Nixons to stifle freedom of expression, joy of living, and preservation of the past. My self-delusionment in this area shows itself in the story Silent in Gehenna, 
included in this collection. As for the future, well, I'm brought in mind of a quote by Albert Camus. Albert Camus. Real generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present. And the present is being ripped off and screwed over by the omnipresent philosophy of I'm alright, Jack, which is a working-class Englishman's term for screw you, baby, I've got mine. It's your future, and you don't seem to give a royal damn what happens to it. So the Ellison who writes this is a little more calloused and tougher than the one who went to Selma with King in March of 1965, less helpful and prone to sweeping Gardaloos. The Ellison sitting here now is an older version of the kid from Painesville who stopped trying to buck the tide of bigotry and stupidity and merely cut out to find the rest of the world. Had I done this book in 1970 as originally planned, you'd find in this space a clarion call to revolution, a resounding challenge to the future. But it's four years later, Nixon time, and I've seen you sitting on your asses, mumbling about impeachment. I've gone through ten years waiting for you to recognize how evil the war in Vietnam was. I've watched you loaf and lumber through college and business and middle-class complacency, pursuing the twin goals of happiness and security. What fools you are, happy, secure corpses you'll be. You're approaching oblivion, and you know it, and you won't do a thing to save yourselves. As for me, you, in this literary liaison, well, I've paid my dues. Now I'm merely going to sit here on the side and laugh my ass off at how you stink in the quag as you sink into the quagmire like the triceratops. I'm going to laugh and jeer and wiggle my ears at your death throes. And how will I do that? By writing my stories. That's how I get in my fix. You can OD on religion or dope or war or McDonald's told burgers for all I care. I'm over here watching you and giggling and saying, this is what tomorrow looks like, dummy. And if you hear me sobbing once in a while, it's only because you've killed me too, you fuckers. <laughs> I'm stuck on this spinning place with you, and I don't want to go. And you've killed me, and I resent it. And the best I can do is tell my little tomorrow stories and keep laughing as the whirlwind whips the dirt in the playground at Lathrop Grade School into an om ominous dust devil. Harlan Ellison, Los Angeles. January 1974. You don't get more real than that. Harlan Ellison, rest in peace. Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves.